Okay, um, the reading this morning uh, is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 11, 32 to 40, 42 to 49, and 51 to 54. And I'll try and work this so that it actually does what I need it to do. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekiah in Ephes Damin. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer led him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then he will be your servant. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The shepherd boy said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with you, this Philistine. Saul said to the shepherd boy, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are just a boy, and you have been a warrior. he has been a warrior from his youth. But the shepherd boy said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, it went, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. The shepherd boy said, The Lord who saves me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to the shepherd boy, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed the shepherd boy with his armor. He put on a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. The shepherd boy strapped Saul's sword over the armor and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then the shepherd boy said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So the shepherd boy removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to the shepherd boy with the shield-bearer ahead of him. When the Philistine looked and saw the shepherd boy, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in his appearance. The Philistine said to the shepherd boy, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed the shepherd boy by his gods. The Philistine said to the shepherd boy, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But the shepherd boy said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I'll give the dead bodies of the Philistine armies this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not say by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet the shepherd boy, the shepherd boy ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. The shepherd boy put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Then the shepherd boy ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of the sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The troops of Israel and Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistine fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. The Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. The shepherd boy took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. You think you know something about a subject. You spend hours of your life listening to endless sermons and talks. And some of them really feel endless. And depending on how engaging the subject is, you might think about what you might be doing for the rest of that day. And then suddenly something will grab your attention or capture your imagination, and you'll never be able to look at the same story again in the same light. Well, this happened to me with this particular story, and I'd like to share some of my own wrestlings, of it, of my, uh, my own wrestlings with the story this morning to you, with you. Um, the three things I'm hoping to do this morning. First, I'd, I'd like to uh, repeat the story, just giving a bit of context and background for it. Then I'd like to share some of the questions that I have had with this particular passage. And finally, I'd like to say why I believe that this story is relevant for us today. The stakes could not have been higher on the northern fright northern front right up on your left hand side there digging in with the Israelites they come down from the mountains to meet their enemy this small fledgling community was once spectacularly delivered from slavery out of Egypt and after many years of wandering in the wilderness they occupied these lands known as a promised land they lived as a loose confederacy of tribes held together by a common bond a belief in their God, who dwelt amongst them, living in the Ark of the Covenant. And they were led by a group of people known as judges, the men and women uh, known as judges. And the last and greatest of these prophets, uh, judges rather, was called Samuel. And he was often on the lookout for those he believed might be called to service, anointing them with olive oil. And very soon, though, it became very clear that uh, their loose confederacy was not going to be strong enough to withhold sustained pressure. So much to Samuel's annoyance, the people requested a king who could lead them and, and unite them against their common enemy. 
which we will hear about in a moment. King Saul was initially anoint, anointed as this man, but very quickly, the story of Samuel says it's a story of his unraveling and his kingship unraveling. On the southern side, on the right-hand side, there was a Philistine army, and they were originally a seafaring people from Crete, and it was the Philistines who gave the name to the land Palestine. They arrived around about the same time as Israel, and though not large military force, they learned skills in metal, smelting. This meant that they could control the industry, and they could control the distribution of iron weaponry to their neighbors. also meant that they could secure the most uh, cutting-edge weaponry for themselves, which meant that they became a fearsome fighting force who terrorized all who faced them. Their military might meant that uh, they were in complete economic control and the influence spread to other industries, uh, such as the production of olive oil and of fermented drinks. And they quickly established themselves in the coastal regions where Tel Aviv is today. But they soon swept through an area of valleys and ridges running east to west, known as the Shephelah. I visited this area in the 1990s, and it's a spectacular place full of oak forests and vineyards and uh, wheat fields. Now, this area was of huge strategic importance, not just because of the economic uh, benefits that it brought to the region, uh, but also it was a means by which a hostile army like the Philistines could access the highland areas and threaten the ancient cities of Jerusalem, of Hebron, and of Bethlehem. And if they were to succeed, then the Israel's kingdom would be split in two, its economic strength undermined and its people plunged back into slavery. And so the Israelites, with a handful of weapons, faced a fearsome sight of the Philistines' devastating military arsenal at the Valley of Elah in the Shephelah, with only a handful of miles separating them. This is actually my photograph. The two armies sat in deadlock, looking at each other over respective trenches. Neither could attack the other, for to do so, the army would have to march down their hill into no man's land, march up the opposition person, uh, camp's hill, uh, and at any time in that uh, journey, they could end up being picked off one by one. So in order to break the deadlock, the Philistine champion Goliath, and this is actually a photograph I remember from my childhood's Bible, um, and Goliath means destroyer, he came out of the ranks every day and every night for 40 nights to issue a verbal challenge, calling Israel's mightiest warriors to single combat. And single combat was a tradition in ancient warfare where uh, they could settle disputes without incurring bloodshed on a major uh, scale. And Goliath is described in the text as a giant, which is significant because one of the reasons why it took so long for Israel to occupy the land they knew as the promised land was because of rumors that spread that the land was occupied by giants. And different biblical manuscripts give different uh, ranging heights for uh, Goliath, anything from six foot three through to about nine foot nine. But whatever is true, Goliath stands head and shoulders above his peers. He's dressed from head to toe in shining bronze armor and carries a sword, a javelin, and a spear. And the provocation could not be clear. It's a visual demonstration of the military superiority of the Philistine army, and the intimidation does its job. 
Notice the challenge is delivered to the servants of Saul and not the army of God. This is tantamount to a boast that Israel's God had abandoned them. It calls a shepherd boy to ask, who is this Philistine that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? The writer of the Talmud, which is a, a Jewish commentary on some of the uh, Old Testament stories, um, could barely contain their anger towards Goliath. He, they say, embodies ungodliness as he parades in front of us. He was directly responsible for the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant and the bringing of it to his temple of his god, Dagon, who's a fish god. The Talmud also claims that he deliberately waited until Israel was at prayer before coming out to taunt them. Goliath is no respecter of the God of Israel. But whatever is true, King Saul is expected to be the champion of the Israelites. He's the most experienced and well-equipped soldier, and yet he, like the armies of Israel, is intimidated and terrified and deeply shaken. In fact, there's no one in the entire army who's brave enough to face this giant. So it took somebody who had not played any part in Israel's military history to date to come up to his rescue now, a young shepherd boy with a different view of the situation who is willing to step up and say to Saul, I'll fight him. Saul takes one look at him and says something like, that's ridiculous, look at you, a a strap of a lad and this gigantic seasoned warrior. You don't stand a chance. And yet the shepherd boy responds by saying that he is an experienced shepherd who has fought wild lions and bears. With the prospect of many months of impasse and in the absence of any credible alternatives, Saul finally agrees to let the shepherd boy go. But on the proviso that he uses the king's own armor, Saul argues that it would be suicide for him to go into battle without it. The shepherd boy tries it on but admits, I can't wear this, or literally, I have not approved it. I've never worn armor before. So in spite of uh, King Saul, uh, the young shepherd boy leaves the camp unprotected to face Goliath. On his way, the shepherd boy picks up five stones from the stream near to the camp. He puts them in his pouch and starts to walk down the valley to meet the giant. The giant sees his figure coming towards him and sneers with contempt. I ask for the mightiest warrior in Israel, and I get this. He says, am I a dog that you you should come to me with sticks? He is enraged that the person has come to him in this way. Uh, He continues his intimidation and his challenge. Come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the wild beasts. After all the jibes that Goliath has hurled towards Israel's God, The shepherd boy retaliates, sending a stone hurtling towards the giant with the words, in the name of the Lord Almighty. The Talmud claims that the shepherd boy had the time to etch these words onto each of the stones alongside the names of all of his brothers. The stone hits Goliath in his most vulnerable spot, his forehead, and he falls down, either stunned or dead. The shepherd boy quickly runs up to him, takes a sword, cuts off his head, and the Philistines witnessing Goliath's death run away and are chased by the Israelites. So having given a bit of a context to the story, what are we to make of it? 
Well, the traditional interpretation of this passage is that it's a story of an underdog who, with God on their side and against all the odds, can claim an amazing victory over someone far stronger. There are plenty of biblical passages that complement this idea that God is on the side of the weakest and can turn events around in unexpected and spectacular ways. I don't buy this interpretation. I'm simply not convinced the shepherd boy is an underdog in this story. It is true that he's young. It is true that he's inexperienced in terms of military warfare. Whereas Goliath is a seasoned fighter. It is also true that Goliath is a giant and the shepherd boy simply isn't. Goliath is armed to the hilt with the most advanced weapons known to man at that time. And the shepherd boy carries a sling. When I used to hear this story, I used to have images of a child's plaything in mind. But nothing could be further from the truth. So you see, in order to understand this conflict, you need to have some understanding of ancient warfare. And there were three kinds of uh, military groups at that time. There were cavalry, cavalry men. These are men who are horsebacks or on chariots. Um, but because of the difficult terrain of the uh, Shephola, the mountainous regions, the forests, and so on and so forth, they wouldn't take any part in this particular uh, action. Then there were heavy infantrymen. They were armed foot soldiers uh, carrying uh, shields and archery uh, and sort of spears and javelins and, uh, and, and swords. This is exactly how Goliath is described. And then there were artillery. And these are mainly uh, archers, but they also include slingers. And this is exactly how the shepherd boy was described. Now, in true Blue Peter fashion, I made one. Here's the one I made earlier. Um, and the idea was that uh, the slinger would put their weapon into the sling, rotating it six to seven revolutions per second, and then release one of the strings and release the weapon. Not very well. <laughs> yeah. um, Travelling something like 35 metres per second, uh, a range of 200 yards, and with a force of a .45 calibre handgun, this was a significantly devastating weapon. Uh, I always thought of the stones as, as pebbles you get on the beach or when you go into streams, uh, you see them. Um, but actually, I've since discovered that these uh, stones were barium sulphate rocks. Barium sulphate rocks, for those who are not geologists amongst us, I'm reliably informed, um, carry a density much denser than uh, any ordinary stones that you have. And as for accuracy, uh, historical records tell us that uh, a slinger could hit a bird in flight. Good job it wasn't me that day, eh? <laughs> Um, the shepherd boy would have every confidence that they'd be able to fight uh, to uh, strike a, a fatal blow. And there was expectation in single combat that a challenger would fight using the same weapons. When Goliath issued his challenge, he fully expected someone to fight him close quarter, hand to hand. King Saul understood this. That's why he offered the shepherd boy his armor and weapons. And Goliath called to the shepherd boy, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds and beasts. This key sentence in this word, key words in this sentence rather, are come to me, expecting the opponent to fight him at close range. 
The shepherd boy, however, has no intention of allowing the opponents to set the agenda in how this battle would be conducted. Why would he fight in this way? He spent his entire career fighting bears and lions using a sling. And that's where his strength lies. And so here he is, an experienced shepherd with a devastating weapon against a giant laid down with 100 pounds of heavy armor and incredibly heavy weapons that are only useful in short-range hand-to-hand conflict. The battle was at least weighted in the shepherd boy's favor. And have you ever thought about how strange the story of Goliath is? The description of Goliath is an invincible, fearsome warrior. And yet a number of these aspects of this story do not make a lot of sense and are quite puzzling. For example, the Hebrew text says that Goliath is led onto the valley floor by the shield bearer. At first sight, it appears obvious Goliath would need somebody to carry his shield. Why, however, does the shield bearer lead the way? Why, indeed, does the shield bearer even go into conflict with Goliath? The clues in the title, single combat. The story gives the impression of the shield bearer forging on ahead. But in actual fact, the Hebrew text suggests that Goliath is guided to the place where he would begin battle. This in itself sounds odd. It's not what you expect of a mighty warrior about to commence battle. But the Hebrew text also makes a special point of just how slowly Goliath moves. Something that you don't get uh, the sense of in the English translations. But it's another strange thing to say about a person described as the most terrifying warrior known to man. And then there's his reaction to the shepherd boy. You see, if Goliath is expecting the challenger to fight him in close quarter combat, the manner and demeanor of the shepherd boy approach would be different. The boy would be doing all sorts of things to to, uh, try and intimidate his opponent. But it's obvious, quiet and calm way that the shepherd boy is approaching, that he's not preparing himself for close quarter conflict. He's not even carrying a sword. So why does Goliath not react to the situation quicker? It's almost as if he's oblivious to what's happening. And, And then there's a strange comment. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Well, some versions of the passage translate that word as stick. But the Hebrew is definitely plural. So why does Goliath believe the shepherd boy is carrying sticks? when it's clear from the text he's carrying a staff. We'll return to that question shortly. The strange characteristics of Goliath demonstrated in the story have caused much speculation about about what might possibly be wrong with Goliath. First discussions appeared in the American Journal in the 1960s and led some to speculate that Goliath might have been living with a medical condition known as acromegaly. Uh, For those of you who are not medically experts, acromegaly is a a benign tumour that grows in the pituitary gland uh, and produces a hormone which which results in rapid growth. Um, Throughout history, some of the uh, most famous giants have had this condition. And the tallest uh, recorded person of all time was a man named Robert Wadlow, pictured here, who was still growing when he died at the age of 24 at the height of 8 foot and 11 inches. The condition has a particular side effect. As the tumour grows, it starts to press on the optical nerves, causing visual impairment. 
So when medical experts read the story of Goliath again, they concluded that, it, uh, that he might be acting or living out with this condition just because of how he has responded to things. And it might explain how, what might be odd about his behavior at, at that time. Why does he move so slowly and need to be led onto the battlefield? They suggest maybe because he can't do it on his own. Why does he ask for the shepherd boy to come to him? Maybe that's another sign of his vulnerability. Come to me because I can't see you. And then he, that strange phrase, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Is it because he's seeing more than one staff? I don't have answers to that, but I thought it was interesting just to, to raise that as an issue this morning. And as a, an aside, um, you notice that I uh, refer to the uh, Goliath's assailant as the shepherd boy. Do you know who killed Goliath? <laughs> well, um, the song we sang in the first service this morning uh, was uh, all through history. And one of the verses of that says, David fought Goliath and he won. But uh, 2 Samuel 21.19 gives a different killer. Somebody called Elhanan. Equivalent verse in 1 Chronicles 20 verse 5 uh, tries to clarify the contradiction, saying that Elhanan killed Lami, the brother of Goliath. The trouble is that in the Hebrew, uh, there is Lami, the brother of, is not there. So it, it's been suggested that this might have been a, a scribal error uh, based on misunderstanding the word Bethlehem. But the contradiction has puzzled scholars for many years, leading some to believe Elhanan is the real uh, hero of this story. While others believe that 20, 1 Chronicles 25 is the correct version, and that Elhanan is not a name at all, but it's, it's a word uh, that's been derived from the Hebrew for weaver's beam, which Goliath has. Um, still others think um, Elhanan, uh, sorry, still others think Elhanan might be another name uh, for David, but this is also a bit uh, of an issue because the book, it, uh, the book about da David uh, only talks about him as David all the way through, except for this point in, in Chronicles 20 verse 5. Anyway, I'll leave that one with you. So, why is this story relevant for us today? Well, I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute. In the Old Testament, the prophet Joel spoke about a time when God would, Spirit would give dreams and visions to all who call on the name of the Lord. So imagine that this church is a blank canvas. What is your vision for this church? And what sort of community do you want us to be? Your dream for this church is probably linked to the things that you are most passionate about can open your eyes now. Uh, Marion and I uh, went on an applied Christian theology course uh, when we were first married called Workshop, and the leader of Workshop asked us to imagine the impossible, to dream beyond the boundaries of church as we knew it. And as Marion and I prayed about this, uh, 
we were reminded that we have been and always have been uh, people who have been drawn to people on the margins. Our particular dream was to make church more accessible uh, to people with communication issues. For example, those with disability or mental health issues. God had promised the Israelites the land that they occupied and given them a dream of being a nation that would bring light to all nations. But the presence of the Philistines embodied in Goliath challenged this dream and threatened to crush the life and hope out of the vision that they'd been given. Having a dream and a vision is one thing, but there's sometimes giants of problems causing us to question ourselves and doubt God's purpose for us. Sometimes these giants are of our own making, our own insecurity and our lack of faith, for example. And sometimes they result from how other people treat us. The unnecessary burdens of expectation that close off opportunities. In the story, King Saul was expected to fight Goliath, but didn't. And the shepherd boy was not expected to fight Goliath, but did. I'd like to introduce an old friend of mine, Julie. Julie's a Christian. And when preparing for this sermon, I asked if it was okay to share her story. And she has given me permission to share that this morning. Now, Julie's witty. She's intelligent. She's creative. She's interesting. And she's a very generous person. Oh, and she happens to be living with a mental health condition, bipolar disorder. In a heightened state, she's enthusiastic and driven and excitable and funny. But when she hits her lows, she describes it like drowning in an ocean of worthlessness and sin and doubt. Julie decided she needed an outlet. And so the creative person that she is decided that she would write about her experience in the form of a poetic dialogue with God. Her verses were raw brutally honest and challenging. And Julie had the idea that she would like to share this in church, in the church that she was in, not, not here. And partly so that others could be aware of what she's going through and perhaps pray for her in a more informed way. But also to raise awareness of the issue and understanding of the issues of mental health. And she contacted the church leadership and gave them copies of her poetry uh, and volunteered to use them in a mental health awareness church service. But on receipt of the, uh, the, the poem, the church were challenged. You see, there were those that thought nothing quite like this has ever been done here before, and, and the service, I don't see how this could fit into the service uh, without changing the structure and the, uh, and the way things are done and therefore causing upset. Uh, and there were others who thought, this wasn't their area of expertise. Their, their focus and mission was not on this type of work. And the general consensus was that this was not gospel work. And therefore, a decision was taken to hold on to Julie's poetry in the event that it might serve a purpose in the future. When I spoke to Julie about preparing this sermon and asked her about this, she told me 30 years on, she still not, has not had her poetry returned to her. She still holds on to her faith firmly in God. However, there's a now a huge Julie-shaped void in that church. And the place is a little less interesting and a little less creative and intelligent and witty 
and generous because of it. Some might consider Julie's mental illness to be the main obstacle to her contributing to the life of that church. I disagree. I think the giant she faced was a fear of prejudice and, and judgment from other people. A second giant threatened in the dream in the passage we've read today is a prejudiced view of age. The hero of the story is a shepherd boy, a youth who by rights had had no, uh, had, should not have been dreaming of such a spectacular victory against Goliath. He would, have chose, he would not have chosen to have led Israel, but God called him out for a specific purpose, and he obeyed. I've often heard the youth betrayed in the, as the future of the church. I disagree. I, I think the youth of the church are the present day of the church and nothing less. If King Saul had argued that the shepherd boy was the future of Israel, um, then the armies would have still been deadlocked. But there's an equally dangerous prejudice against in church and in wider society, and it's against older people. It's a marginalization of their story and undermining of their, and devaluing of their contributions, their knowledge, experience, and wisdom. I want to tell you about Wilf. Wilf is a Christian, and he's a distant relative of mine. And he has given me permission to share his story this morning. His wife sadly passed away 20 years ago. And whilst still in mourning, Wilf decided that he wanted to give something back to the church. And so he offered his services in welcoming people at the door. Wilf developed quite a skill in doing so. He was friendly and sociable and deeply caring. He was well known, not just in the church, but also in the local community. In recent years, however, he's become more hard of hearing. This has led to some amusing anecdotes, which I might share on another occasion but it also made people feel uncomfortable. Wilf's communication also began to deteriorate as a result of uh, various physical health conditions. The church, the leadership, decided that they wanted to take welcoming ministry in a different direction because they did not think that Wilf, with his hearing and communication difficulties, uh, was a good advocate for the church. They wanted a new, dynamic and youthful team to attract more people. Unfortunately, the person who was meant to tell him about the change did not do so. And so the first Wilf heard about being replaced was when it was announced on a Sunday in church. I wish I could say differently, but sadly, the tale of Wilf is not unique. And that church ha now has a Wilf-shaped hole and is a little less friendly, a little less sociable, and a little less deeply caring. Joel recognized that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can expect to have dreams and visions for the future church, regardless of age or experience. The future of the church depends on how each of its members treats each other in the present. The church needs people, young and old, to take up roles that build the church up and fulfill its vision. People who are willing to make mistakes, learn from each other, and grow together without active engagement in mission and ministry, then the church, like Israel in the story, is in serious danger of extinction. Finally, this is a story about trusting God. Something that is easy to say when life is good and things are going well. 
We can hold on to stories of God's spectacular interventions in the past, believing that the same can happen again. But if you're completely honest, it's very difficult to trust God when things just seem to be getting worse. King Saul couldn't do it. All he could see from a distance was a Goliath, a self-assured, invincible enemy. The shepherd boy, in contrast, went into the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that God was with him, and he trusted. He knew that God didn't always spectacularly intervene. If, if God did do that, then that would be a bonus. He knew that God had given him God-given skills, knowledge, and experience as a shepherd which he could use. He could not guarantee that he would overcome this mighty warrior. Yet he had the courage, the trust, and the faith in God to bravely face Goliath, even when the prospect of death loomed large on the horizon. So what giants are on your horizon today? Do you trust that God will help you to face them, even when the prospect looks bleak? In conclusion then, I believe the message of the story, of this story, is that each of us have a part to play in the life of our church. God has a dream and a vision for each of us that is bigger than any giant that bars the way. I pray that as we learn to trust God, to seek his plans for us and for others, and not to tolerate tolerate giants in our way. Earlier we paused to consider the, our dreams for this church. In the following moments of silence, let us each ask of God what the next step will be for us. You might feel that you want to share something of your vision with another person here this morning who you trust. You might wish to share it with someone outside of this church who you are close to, or take it to a small group if you're a part of one. Digging trenches and staying put is not an option on this journey. I pray for the courage to step out from safety and certainty and face your giants knowing that God goes out with you.